0: You would turn back with me this morning to the fifth chapter of the gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter five. I read this morning verse twenty-one through twenty six. Jesus says, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift." Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou the away with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. The Lord, in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, is going to begin to contrast some things that they had heard of old time with the true meaning of what the law that Moses was given really addressed. In fact, he's going to look at five different examples. Uh, We see here in verse 21, he says, you've heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill. He says, but I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. He says in verse 27, you have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. He says, but I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Verse 33, he says, again, ye have heard that it had been said of them of old time, thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. He says in verse 38, Ye have heard that it had been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. In verse 43 says, Ye have heard that it had been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you and so forth. In Mark's gospel in the first chapter, it says that as Jesus taught them They took notice that Jesus taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Jesus taught differently. Notice verse 21, he says, Ye have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. Now everything we're going to look at today and over the next few weeks, Jesus is not in any way contradicting the law of Moses. I've said before, he did not come as a revolutionary. He did not come to revolt against the law of Moses. He came to fulfill the law of Moses and the prophets. As we saw a couple weeks ago, he says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law and the prophets. He says, I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. He went on to say, he says, Heaven and earth shall pass away before one jot or one tittle of the law would pass. So Jesus is not here to say that what God gave Moses was wrong, that what God gave Moses was incomplete. But what Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount is that the understanding that the scribes and the Pharisees had of the law and how they were teaching the law was not complete. It was not correct. They were twisting the law for their own benefit. As they would later say, as Jesus said, you have heard it said, thou shalt love uh, thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Jesus says, no, that's not the right way to behave. Well, here in verse 21, he says, ye have heard that it was said by them of old time. And of course, we find this in Exodus chapter 20. Moses is told by God, it's in the 10 commandments, thou shalt not kill. Now, Jesus in Matthew 19, he will further define what God meant in uh, Exodus chapter 20. Jesus will say it this way in Matthew chapter 19, verse 10, talking to the rich young ruler. He says, thou shalt do no murder. There's a difference in killing and a difference in murder. Uh, They're not the same. Uh, Someone breaking into our home and me killing them in the defense of my family and myself, that's not murder. That's self-defense. Well, if I just take the law of Moses in Exodus chapter 20 and it says, Thou shalt not kill, um, am I allowed to kill an individual who comes into our home to do us harm? Well, if I just read that on the surface, I would say no. But Jesus further defines for us. He gives us commentary on his own law when he says thou shalt do no murder. There's a difference in the intent uh, when it comes to murder versus a justified killing. When our soldiers go into war to defend the freedoms of this nation and have to kill men, uh, they're not murdering in that instance. Uh, they're justifiably killing those that would do us harm and try to take from us the God-given freedom that thankfully we've been blessed with for so long. So Jesus, again, is not here saying that killing is okay. He's not here to say that uh, the law of Moses got it wrong. He's here to let them know that the people they've been hearing from were not giving them the complete story. And the Lord is going to use these examples to display to us that the law of Moses was intended to reach more than the hands and the feet of men. It was to be more than just our activity. It was to govern our heart. And that's what the Lord is very concerned with, is matters of our heart. Uh, He makes it very clear it's from the heart that proceeds murders and envy and so forth. And so if the heart, of course, is wicked, wickedness shall come forth. Well, these Pharisees, in many cases, were wicked men and were doing wicked things. And even when they were complying with the law of Moses, they weren't doing it to glorify God. They were doing it to glorify themselves and to glorify Moses and the law which had been given to Moses. They weren't interested in God. Even when Saul of Tarsus, who was zealous of the law of God, uh, he didn't really care about the God of the law. He just cared about the law itself. And so, of course, he put men and women to death who were simply believing on the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ a lawyer if they're not careful will get to that position they'll get to that point uh, a Pharisee if not careful will before long take the law into a way that the Lord never intended so again he says ye have heard that it was said of, by them of old time thou shalt not kill and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment the word danger there means liable to doesn't mean necessarily there will be a judgment in the sense of a court of law he says but they're liable to that judgment Now, the judgment under consideration there was the council of that day and time, uh, the court system of that era. And the court system, especially in the days of Jesus, was the Sanhedrin. And so when folks would violate the law of Moses, they would be brought before them and they would pass judgment. So the Lord makes it very clear. He says, you have heard that you're not to kill and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger. You're liable to the court system. Obviously, in our day and time, the same is true. If I were to kill somebody, even in self-defense, I'm liable to the judicial system of our nation. I've got to uh, show evidence and proof that that killing was in self-defense. And obviously, if it's not, if it was a murder, then I justifiably should be uh, convicted and put away, or really my life taken from me uh, for taking the life of another. So here the Lord, he says, for those that kill, they would be in danger of the judgment. That's true. He says, but... There's more to the story than this. Jesus is not contradicting, again, what the law of Moses said. Jesus is not authorizing us to kill by what he goes. In fact, he's putting really more restriction on it than what the Pharisees and the scribes had done. The Pharisees and scribes were trying to skirt by the law every way they could. Now, when it came to others, they wanted the restrictions clamped down. But when it came to themselves, they wanted to do like many in our land today. Uh, There's many in our land today that would like to skirt the... Well, there's many that would just like to destroy the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and other founding documents and laws that protect us. They would utterly destroy them if they could. Uh, But there's many who try to twist, uh, try to uh, contrive in different ways, try to skirt the law, uh, get by just close enough on the edge of it so it doesn't appear that the law has been broken. And that's how the Pharisees were behaving so Jesus says, I say to you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. The judgment again being the court of law in Jesus' day. Jesus is saying there's a judgment also for those who would hate their brother without a cause. In the book of Leviticus, the 19th chapter, you'll find that the law also taught this very same thing. In Leviticus chapter 19 verse 17, Moses says this, ye shall keep my statute.'" Excuse me, I'm in the wrong verse. (laughs) Verse 17, he says, Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. He says, Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. That's one of the ways to define how it is that we're not to hate our brother. It is that we're not to suffer them to sin. We're to rebuke them. But notice again what he says. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. So even the law of Moses made clear that God was concerned with what we feel and the motivations of our hearts. So again, the Lord says, I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause. See, Jesus understood that killing comes from a heart of anger. That if you don't deal with the root issue to start with, then obviously there's going to be great danger and great unrest ...in the lives of God's people. As we mentioned a few weeks ago, the law of Moses was given to control the hearts of God's people... ...to uh, guide the hearts of God's people. Why? So that the Israelites, when they came into the land of rest, the land of promise... ...they would not live under anarchy... ...but they would know directly from the heart and mouth of God how it was they were to live... ...so that they would have a peaceful existence among their brethren in the land of Israel, the land of promise... The law of Moses was not given just so that God could be unkind and restrict every movement of man. That was not the intent of God. The intent of God in giving law and in fact the purpose of law, the true root purpose of any law should be that it governs the actions of men, hopefully the hearts of men as much as possible, so that we may live peaceably in society. There are many that hate law altogether. There are those in our land, even today, and across this world, they are called anarchists. They believe there should be no law. Let every individual govern themselves. There's a problem with that. Uh, I certainly want good laws, but I do want law. I'm thankful for law enforcement. I'm thankful for a judicial system. And also thankful that we have a penal system in this nation. Imagine what it would be like if there were no laws whatsoever in America and if there was no law enforcement officers in our land, and if there was no court system to convict men and women of crime, and if there was no prison system uh, to house those individuals and keep them away from the rest of society, you, it would be unreal to imagine what our world would be like if every criminal that's locked up right now, especially some of the most heinous of them, were set loose and free upon society again. It would be a very dreadful and fearful place to live. And so uh, law is vital. Law is important. Uh, God himself is the one, as he teaches in Romans chapter 13, that has ordained civil law in this world. And so when we live under um, our own county officials, under our state officials, our federal officials, we must understand that those officials the responsibilities that they have in maintaining law and order that is ordained by God and so long as they're complying with the will and word of God, you and I have a Bible obligation to obey those men and women in those positions of authority. Now, obviously, if they begin to contradict the word of God and try to command us to do the same, then we're to obey God rather than men. But so long as what they command us is not in violation of the word of God, you and I are obligated by the law of God itself, the word of God, to comply uh, with what they say. And when we don't, we're in danger of the judgment. But Jesus says to these individuals and to you and I as well, but if we're angry with our brother without a cause... Now understand, he puts a caveat in there. There's times that there's cause to be angry. But even in our anger, there's a way to deal with it. Paul would tell the church at Ephesus in the fourth chapter, the 26th verse. He says, be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon thy wrath. That tells me that whatever anger I have needs to be quickly Dealt with. That if I am angry with cause, then whatever the cause is needs to be dealt with expeditiously. Now sometimes we now understand when Paul says, let not the sun go down upon your eyes. Some of us understand that we may need a little bit of time to collect ourselves. So that we can address the matter. So that hopefully we do it in such a way that still honors the Lord. If that takes a day or two, then take the day or two. Paul doesn't literally mean that if you need a couple days in order to collect yourself. So that you'll deal with the situation in such a way that God will be pleased. And the outcome with your brother will be good. Then obviously take a couple days. The point is you and I are not to seethe in wrath. Uh, we're to put away Malice. We're to put away anger. Uh, those are not to be attributes that you and I let grow. Uh, we're not to—they may be seated in our heart, but we're not to allow them to take root in our heart. Because once they take root, they will spread. How many times have we seen ourselves in our own experience, and maybe our households, our own family, maybe our extended family, even in our church, when uh, people let anger take root, and all of a sudden that spread. And what happens? Before long, relationships have been murdered. Jesus, when he says, thou shalt not kill, and then moves forward to anger, he understands that anger, it may not literally kill an individual, but it can kill a marriage. It can kill a relationship between parents and children. It can kill a relationship between uh, uh, brothers and sisters in the flesh. It can kill relationships in the house of God. How many of you sitting here today have had friendships here in the house of God in the past that exist no more because anger took root in the heart of somebody and it busted up, it slew a relationship, it murdered a friendship that would have still continued on had not malice and anger been allowed to rule the day. See, Jesus understands that the root of killing is anger. Go to the very first murder that happens in the Word of God in human history. Uh, you find in the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis. It doesn't take long in human history before murder take place. Takes place. Genesis chapter four. It says Adam knew his Eve his wife and she conceived and bare Cain and said I have gotten a man from the Lord and she again bare his brother Abel and Abel was a keeper of sheep but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought to the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the first things of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord, notice, had respect unto Abel and to his offering. That is important. Notice God first respected Abel and because of that he respected his offering. I've heard people say the reason that God did not receive the offering of Cain is because it was not an animal sacrifice. That is not true. God required vegetable sacrifice, uh, agricultural sacrifice, from the children of Israel. Under the law of Moses, uh, they were to give a tenth of all they had, and so there were things that were given uh, from the ground that had been grown. So it wasn't that God despised Cain because he brought fruit versus uh, bringing an animal. He respected Abel. That means he loved Abel. And because he loved Abel, he he accepted, he received his sacrifice. He understood that the sacrifice that Abel was making truly came from the heart. Cain, on the other hand, notice what it says about him. But unto Cain and to his offering, he had not respect. So God did not respect Cain. God did not love Cain. He also did not respect the manner in which Cain brought the sacrifice. Cain brought the sacrifice, much like the Pharisees in Jesus' day did. Uh, He brought it out of a sense of obligation, maybe an appeasement of some sort, not out of a love uh, toward God. And so God did not respect him, nor did he respect his offering and notice the result. And Cain was very wroth. That means he was very angry, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallest? He says, If thou doest well shalt thou not be accepted, and if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. He just lets Cain know, it's your own fault. Uh, You have no right to be mad at God, and you have no right to be mad at anyone else. Verse 8, it says, and Cain talks, that did not penetrate the heart of Cain. God's response to Cain's anger did not penetrate his heart. That indicates to us that the heart of Cain was not a heart that loved God. Notice the next verse, verse 8, Cain talked with Abel his brother and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. Where did this murder proceed from? It proceeded from the fact that he was very wroth, he was very angry and even God who noticed the anger knew uh, if that went unchecked what was going to occur. God let him know that the fault was not with God. And the fault was not with Abel. The fault was with Cain. Cain did not like hearing that the fault was with him. And so the only thing Cain uh, knew to do to try to temper uh, what he felt was to do away with his brother. And so he slays him. And of course the Lord comes. He says, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. He says, And now art thou cursed from the earth which hath opened from her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. He said, there's going to be a curse upon you the rest of the days of your life. He deserved that. This was a wicked man that did a wicked thing for a wicked reason. And so God condemned him for it. And this man lived the rest of his life under a curse because that which he had done in God's sight. Let's turn to 1 Samuel Chapter 18, First Samuel chapter 18, the context is this, in the chapter before, Saul and Israel are on one side of a valley, and the Philistines and Goliath on the other. And for 40 days, there's a standstill in this battle. And the reason being is every day, this man Goliath, who's nearly 10 foot tall, would come out and taunt Israel. And tell them, just send out your best. If you win, we'll be your servants. If we win, you'll be our servants. Why did Israel want a king to start with back in chapter, uh, earlier? chapter, I can't remember what chapter right now. I think it's chapter 12 or 13. Anyway, why'd they want a king? They wanted a king who would fight our battles for us. Well, here's a battle. Where's Saul? Why did they choose Saul? He stood head and shoulders above the rest. He was taller than any other Israelite. So he looked like a good man for the the job. If we want somebody to go out and fight our battles for us, on paper, Saul fit the bill. He's bigger than the rest of us. Let's make him king. Because when we go up against a big enemy, we want the biggest man leading the charge. Where's Saul during this battle? He's not out there in the middle of the valley uh, fighting with Goliath. He's up on the hilltop uh, just as afraid as every other man who's gathered there that day. And so for 40 days, this goes on. 40 in the Bible is a number of testing or trial. For 40 days, this occurs. Finally, David comes out on the scene bringing provisions for his uh, seven older brothers who are in battle. And as he comes on the scene, uh, here comes Goliath, utters that same thing again. And what does David say? David, in response to this, is angry. Uh, He says, is there not a cause? In other words, is is God not worth fighting for? He said, this uncircumcised Philistine, he defies the armies of the God of Israel. He says, this man is defying God himself. God will be with us in this battle. And so as he hears the taunt, as he hears uh, uh, the teasing that day, what does David do? He says, I'll go. So Saul... Have you ever stopped to think that Saul, how in the world did he let that little boy go out there and fight? The future of the nation hung on that battle. If David lost, what was going to happen? The whole nation would be slaves to the Philistines. And yet Saul let that man go, or that boy go anyway. So David, of course, goes. First of all, tries uh, Saul's army says, I haven't proved them. I haven't tested these things. You know what he had tested? He had tested the shepherd's bag and the script and stones and a sling. He knew those things well. Why? Because he had been employed as a shepherd for his father for many years. And he makes clear when they argue with him about going out there, he said, Listen, I've already slain a bear and I took a line by the beard and I slew him also. Now, I don't know if that was in the same time, but either way, he said, I've gone after a bear, and I've gone after a lion. This uncircumcised Philistine, he's nothing uh, compared to the bear and the lion. I'm not afraid of him. So he goes down, if you remember, to the brook and gathers five smooth stones. Some people like to really wonder, why did he pick out five? Maybe it's because he thought one wouldn't do the job. I don't know. But also find, as you read later in the Bible, this man Goliath had four other brothers. And maybe he, David knew this and understood they might come out and fight him. So he needed four more stones. I don't know why it took five. All it took was one. And that giant was slain. And David took his sword and cut off his head. And there that day Israel was victorious. Now if you've got a king who for 40 days listens to the taunt and is fearful to go out himself, To defend the children of Israel, wouldn't you think that his gratitude would be unending? It was short-lived. Here's why. It says in chapter 18 verse 2, Saul took him that day and would not let him go no more home to his father's house. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David and his garments even to his sword and to his bow and to his girdle. And it says, David went out whithersoever Saul sent him and behaved himself wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war. So he becomes a captain or in our day a general. And he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So not only has he gained a victory, now he's gained the the allegiance of Saul's army. Not in a bad way. Not in that they've turned from Saul to David. They're still uh, uh, aligned with Saul. But they understand that David is their captain and David will uh, lead them wisely. And so they love this man. They're loyal to him. And that's why later on, as he will uh, have to flee from Saul, there'll be 600 uh, strong men that will... ally themselves with David and will be so loyal to him that even later when uh, his own son drives him from the throne, uh, when he just makes mention of a particular well of water, a man would hazard his life uh, to go and get that water to bring back to David. That's how much these men loved that man. It says it came to pass as they came when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tablets, with joy and with instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Here the problem arises. Now they shouldn't have sang that. And you ought to be careful You know, parents need to be careful when they praise one child to the neglect of another. Even among the ministry, I've seen men grow jealous over other ministers because of the acclaim and praise of one man over another. And so we ought to be careful about that. But Saul is responsible for Saul. Just because these women sang what they sang doesn't give Saul the right to do what Saul will now do. Notice verse 8. It says, And Saul... Was very wroth. Sounds a lot like Cain with Abel, does it not? He was very wroth, uh, Cain, because Abel was accepted with God, because his offering was accepted by God. And now here is Saul, who has just seen David deliver the children of Israel from the hand of their enemy, and now has gone out and uh, proved himself wise with his soldiers a man who is loyal to King Saul, who would do anything uh, that was right in the sight of God for King Saul. And now this man, though, is envious against David because these women just happened to sing a song that Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. What did it matter? It was just words. Saul was very wroth and the saying displeased him, and he said, they have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed but thousands. Now, as far as we know, outside of the... Giant. I don't know that David has slain anyone else. The record at this point doesn't say for sure. But obviously in the time of Israel's greatest need, who stood up? It wasn't Saul. It was David. David that day became the shepherd of the children of Israel in his behavior. So it says, from that time forward, Saul eyed David. That means he sought opportunity, much like the Pharisees did of the Lord Jesus. They were always looking for an opportunity. When can we get him alone privately and put this man to death? And that's where Saul is now. He's very wroth. And of course, as you look at the next several chapters, all of 1 Samuel going forward from here is going to be David trying to escape the hand of Saul. David, for the most part, acts very wisely, very obediently to God throughout this. There'll be two times in David's experience, and we'll look at those in a few moments, uh, hopefully, where David would have made a major misstep had it not been for the providential hand of God stepping in. But anyway, we'll find that this man is after David's life because he's defended the nation and because women have ascribed to David ten thousands and only thousands to Saul. See, Jesus knows in Matthew 5 what causes killing. He understands that once anger takes hold, if we're not careful very quickly, it could lead to us taking the life of another. And don't think it couldn't happen. You may say, I would never take someone's life. Listen, we are of the children of men just as anyone else. I understand we're born of the Spirit of God, and and hopefully that tempers us, and we wouldn't do that but it doesn't mean that we're not able. We're able just as well as any other. In fact, David himself would have murdered uh, later in first Samuel had God not intervened and it would have been a very unwise thing for David to do. So again, Jesus says in Matthew chapter five, verse 22, I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. He's just in, as much in danger of a judgment against him as someone, he says, that does kill. Now he'll go on to say, not only are you not to be angry without a cause, he says, whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka. What does that word mean? It means vain fellow. I can find an example in the scriptures where that term was used and a judgment followed. Jesus says, don't say that to your brother. Don't call your brother a vain... What's vain? Worthless. Do you want to be called a worthless fellow or a worthless woman? Obviously not. So Jesus says, you don't do that. He says, in fact, if you do, uh, you're going to be in danger of the council. The same council of Pharisees that would gather together to judge murder, he says, would also judge that if they were judging correctly. He says, so you shouldn't uh, call someone a vain fellow, a worthless individual... Go to 2 Samuel chapter 6. In 2 Samuel chapter chapter 6, you'll find the story of David bringing finally the Ark of the Covenant back home. The Ark of the Covenant has been gone for many years. Throughout all the reign of Saul, it's been gone. And throughout partial reign of David, it's been out of its place. Do you remember the story? You'll know why because in 1 Samuel chapter 4 before there is even a king over the children of Israel you'll find there was a man that led them. This is prior to Samuel being their judge. There's a man by the name of Eli who has two sons Phinehas and Hophni and these two men are wicked Uh, and God is going to judge those two men and Eli for not uh, uh, taking care of those two sons and it's going to happen in a very interesting way. 1 Samuel chapter 4, what's happened? The Philistines again. You know, those folks were just a constant problem to the children of Israel. 1 Samuel chapter 4, there's a battle between the Israelites and the Philistines. The Israelites couldn't get the upper hand. It was almost, it was a stalemate. So finally, you know what they said? Call for the ark, for it shall save us. And so they trusted the ark of God instead of the God of the ark. And so the ark comes into the camp of Israel And when the ark comes in, the people of God give a shout, and that dissolves the hearts of the Philistines. And they were about to go home, but one among them stood up, spoke wisely, said, we can still win this battle, and they did. Many Israelites were slaughtered that day because they trusted in the ark instead of trusting in God. And not only that, they lost the ark of God as well. The Philistines took it. And so they take it into the house of Dagon, who is one of their gods. And of course, you know the story, I think. Uh, uh, Dagon falls over. They go in and prop him back up. They go back in. He's fallen over again, and he's busted to pieces. And they realize, we've got to get this thing out of here. And so they send it home uh, with some gifts in it. And uh, and you can read about the gifts. Uh, They're quite interesting how the Lord took care of that people. Uh, But God brought a curse upon them So long as the ark was with them It didn't belong to them And so it comes back to Israel In the border And David tries to get it home later Saul never did Saul didn't seem to be concerned about it David was David wanted it back At Shiloh at its proper place Where the tabernacle of God was So what does David do? Same thing the Philistines did The Philistines They took a new cart took cows, hooked them up, and they sent it home. In fact, not only just cows, they took a cow with a calf, and that cow went against nature, didn't go home, went the opposite direction from that uh, uh, bleeding calf, and took that ark where it went, needed to go. So what does David do? David, he builds a new cart, and they're going to do the same thing. Now, God is merciful to the Philistines. You know why? Because they don't know how to handle the cart, I mean the ark. The children of God, the Israelites, they knew better if they just read the word of God. See, you and I have no excuse for when we do wrong if we would just read the word of God say, so, well, I didn't know the Word of God said that. Well, you would if you'd read it. I would a lot of times know if it's do, I'm doing something wrong, if I'd read that it says, don't do that or do this. Uh, uh, so a lot of times we make mistakes. We would like to claim ignorance. We have no right to claim ignorance if we just simply uh, daily read the Word of God and do like David said, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Anyway, you know, reading the Word of God and committing it to memory is not just to test our mental skills, <laughs> Uh, thankfully, um, my memory for the word of God on things I read in my youth is uh, still fairly good. There's a lot of verses that I can quote, but quoting verses and not applying them to their, our life, what good is it? Uh, that's basically doing the same thing the Lord is talking about right here in Matthew chapter 5. Reading the word of God, committing it to memory, but then not acting upon it in a proper way is useless. But if you and I will commit the word of God to our hearts so that we won't sin against him, that's glorifying in his sight and it's beneficial to our lives. Uh, Anyway, so David, he was going to get the cart back, or the ark back home. I'll get the right word and of course can't remember that fellow's name that reached out and touched it. There you go, Uzzah, he reaches out. I was going to say Uzziah, but I know that he was a king. But anyway, he reaches out to touch it because that one of those oxen stumbled. That ark was going to fall. Uzzah cared about the ark. He reached out and touched it, and God smote him and struck him dead right there. The Israelites touched that ark. The Israelites opened the ark. The Israelites put gifts No, they didn't open the ark. They had enough wisdom not to do that. Uh, uh, They put gifts on the cart with the ark. But uh, here they've touched it. They've done things they weren't supposed to, and God did not smite them. See, God had told Moses when the ark was made that it was made out of shittim wood overlaid with pure gold. The mercy seat covering it was made out of pure gold. There were pure gold rings on both sides, And there were to be staves, poles, made out of staffs, if you will, out of shittim wood, covered with pure gold, slide them in those rings. And then the sons of Korah, only them, were to bear the ark upon their shoulders. Why the shoulders? It indicated it was close to their heart. That was the only way that God ever gave for that ark to be moved. And it moved a lot. And there was very precise rules in how to move it. And even the rules on how to move it were to still impress the hearts of God's people. Well, David doesn't do that. Well, later, finally, David brings it home the right way. 2 Samuel chapter 6. Remember, Jesus says, you're not to call your brother a vain fellow. David comes home with that ark the second time. And as he comes into the city of Shiloh, he is so happy that things are back in the right place. Things have been done the right way for the right reason. This man is so happy, he takes off his kingly or royal robes. Understand, he does not dance around naked. He becomes a commoner. You know what he's saying? I'm right here among the people. I'm no better than they are, I'm no greater than they are, I'm among them, I'm one of them. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, she looks out the window, she sees David, takes off his royal robes, and you know what she calls him? A vain fellow. That's the exact phrase she says, you are, as one of the vain fellows, you're just like these commoners out here who are worthless. Now that tells us two things about this woman. Uh, that she thinks that the uh, people of Israel are worthless people, that they don't deserve a king that loves them and that feels to be a part of them. And then she also views David when he is willing to lower himself and humble himself and do much like the Lord Jesus Christ did when he came into this world uh, as a man, humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Uh, David here is a type or a picture of the Lord Jesus who was willing to be just like the folks there out on the streets that day. And as that parade comes in, he uh, strips off his royal robes. As he's leading that procession, he doesn't want to do so as a king. He wants to do so as a child of God, just like the rest of the people of Israel. And Michael, she sees that, and she's angry at David, saying, you're no better than these common, worthless people out here that you're king over. And David lets her know that he'll never come to her again. She will live As a widow from that day forward, she will live a cursed life because she did exactly what Jesus tells you and I here not to do. That means we're not to consider one another worthless and we sure shouldn't say it. And then Jesus says, lastly, whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hell fire. Now notice this very quickly before we proceed into that. Do you understand that the judgment and the counsels that have been mentioned all the way to this point have all been temporal? That's a temporal judgment, a temporal consequence. Keep that in mind. Jesus isn't all of a sudden going from temporal to eternal. He's not saying all of a sudden that if we do this one thing, you, know, you, can, you can kill, you can be angry, you can call your brother a worthless individual, but if you say fool, now you're, you're, you're in danger of going to hell. Now, that's not what Jesus is saying. Now, remember, endanger means you're liable, too. You deserve it. That doesn't mean it's necessarily what's going to occur, but the hellfire under consideration here is not an eternal hell. But we'll get to that in a moment. <clears throat> what does he mean by thou fool? Now, the Bible lets us, the, the Bible use that uses this word fool a lot. Go to the book of Proverbs. There's a lot of times. You know, if you come to me with the word of God... When I'm doing wrong, and I won't hearken, you know what the Bible calls me? A fool. But that's not the context here. The word fool here literally means a godless one. So I'm not to say of you that you're godless. What does that mean? It means I believe you're not one of his. Think about that. It's not my job, and it's not your job to determine who belongs to God and who doesn't. I don't know whose names are written on the Lamb's book of life. The Lord Jesus Christ knows that. Uh, The Bible says, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal: the Lord, not Brother Chris, the Lord knoweth them that are His. Now I recognize that in the Word of God, there were times that John the Baptist, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, Paul the Apostle, uh, and even Peter made great uh, and uh, definitive statements about where folks were going. Uh, There were some wicked individuals that by divine inspiration, John the Baptist, the Apostle Peter, and the Apostle Paul could let them know they were going to hell. You know how they were able to tell that? Because God revealed it to them by the Spirit of God. Jesus knew it because he knew who were his and who weren't. So Jesus didn't have to have that revealed to him. He already knew. So those were individuals that had Bible right to say to an individual whether they were godless or not. You and I don't have that right. See, the thief on the cross was a godless man up until just a few moments before his death. Saul of Tarsus was a godless man before his experience on the road to Damascus. You and I were godless individuals before we were born of the Spirit of God. And you don't know if an individual will be like that thief on the cross. It might be in their dying moment that the Spirit of God comes and moves upon them and translates them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. And so it's not our right, nor is it our responsibility uh, to determine uh, the eternal destination of any individual upon the face of this earth. There may be somebody that's exceedingly wicked and you may think that individual is bound for hell. And they are, unless the Lord Jesus Christ intervenes and they're born of the Spirit of God. Uh, But I can't make that determination, and neither can you. See, this word here, fool, is used in the same sense as Psalm 14, verse 1, when it says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. He's talking about an atheist here. He's talking about an individual who believes there is no such thing as God, and thus is godless, meaning they don't serve any God other than themselves. And so here when the Lord Jesus says, you're not, the law of murder goes beyond just killing. He said it goes to this extent. He says, number one, you're not to be angry without a cause. You're not to consider your brother or call him a worthless individual or a vain fellow. And he says, and you're not to make the determination and say that an individual is godless. That's reserved to the son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows who he's died for and who he hasn't. I don't, and you don't, and no other person on the face of this earth does. He alone knows that, and I'm satisfied with that, and I'm content with that, and so be cautious about what you might say about another individual. You may be seeing them at the worst time in their experience, at the lowest point in their carnality, but you might not see them in the very next moment when they're born of the Spirit of God. And all of a sudden, they're a Paul who loves the Lord just as deeply or more so than he had loved the law right before that. So be very careful what judgment you make. So Jesus says, when we say, "thou fool, or we call someone godless, when we say they're bound for hell, he says, "Ye should be in danger of hell fire. The word hell there is a, from a Greek word. It's not used every time for hell. And it speaks of a very specific valley outside of Jerusalem where the carcasses of both men and beasts would be taken and they would be burned. And that fire just kept going. Now from that, the Jews did believe that that was an analogy. That little burning pit was an analogy of an eternal hell. The Jews believed in eternal hell. And oftentimes they would use this valley as an analogy of that place. But here in this case, Jesus is literally speaking of that. And he's bringing their minds that any person that would say of another that they're godless without, without knowing that they are liable, they deserve to go to that place that burns there. He says, that's what you deserve. That's the end that you deserve. Again, he's not speaking in eternal terms here. He's speaking in a temporal place and a temporal experience. Now then he says in verse 23, he says, therefore, if thou this is companion to Matthew 18. We often think of Matthew 18 about when we're offended, how we're supposed to go to our brother. Tell his fault between thee and him alone. That's true. But Matthew chapter 5 tells us the flip side. Sometimes you know a brother's offended at you. Or a sister. You know it. It's clear. But for whatever reason, they won't come to you. Well, that's their problem. Matthew 18 says, they got to come to me. Well, Matthew 5 says, you go to them. Give them a little time. If they haven't come to you, Matthew chapter 5 says, you go to them. Notice what Jesus says. He says, therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Jesus is saying it's, it's first right to be reconciled than it is to offer gifts to God. The Jews thought this way. Well, I don't have to be reconciled to my brother. If I come and bring a gift to the altar, God will be satisfied with me. I'm satisfied with God. And I can continue on even though I know I've done wrong and my brother is rightfully angry with me. Jesus says, no, you can't do that. It's just like in the occasion when Samuel comes to Saul. And Saul has been commanded by God to slay the Amalekites. And not only uh, the Amalekites, but all their beasts as well. And we find that as they go to battle with the Amalekites, and there was reason for that, because there was a period when the children of Israel uh, Israel were in the wilderness, that the Amalekites came out and uh, in a sneaky way uh, came against the children of Israel. And God remembered it. And so God tells Saul, you go and you destroy every Amalekite. There's not to be one left remaining. And what happens? So he goes, and he kills most of them, but he doesn't kill them all. He sees slaves in the deal, and then he sees sheep. He sees flocks and herds. Why waste them? We can bring them into ours. And Samuel comes to him and questions him why he hasn't been obedient to God. He says, I have been obedient to God. That's lie number one. He ends up telling, I think, three. Three. He'll blame the people. You know, well, the people wanted to keep them. <laughs> you no, know, we haven't kept the sheep. He says, well, what is this bleeding of sheep that I hear? You know what Samuel tells Saul? He says, God, this is 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. He says, God prefers, this is my words obedience rather than sacrifice. That doesn't mean sacrifice isn't important. But if we're being disobedient, I think, well, I'll bring a sacrifice, offer it to God. See, he says, we kept some because we wanted to make an offering to the Lord. Well, the Lord didn't say to do that. The Lord said, you kill them all. Saul says, well, we wanted to sacrifice the Lord. Well, the Lord didn't say that. The Lord said, do this. So Saul did not obey. And so Samuel says, the Lord prefers obedience over sacrifice. The Lord Jesus would teach that. The Apostle Paul would tell us that in the book of Hebrews. He says, offerings and burnt offerings, thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Why? Because he finally, he was God didn't want that anymore. For hundreds of years, the Jews had been uh, burning offering after offering. And yet they were going about their sinful ways. So Jesus said, offerings and burnt offerings, thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. He says, so here I come to do thy will, O God. And so the Son of God comes as the Lamb of God to be sacrificed one time in perfect obedience, thereby fulfilling God's desire for obedience uh, over sacrifice. But Jesus did it through the perfect sacrifice. Anyway, here he says, if you remember at the altar that your brother has ought against you, leave your gift there. You still gotta give it. <laughs> Doesn't say go be reconciled and now you keep the gift. He says, leave there thy gift before the altar, go thy way, first be reconciled to thy brother, then come and offer thy gift. You can say in a today's term, you know, I don't need to go and make it right with so-and-so here. I'm gonna come to the house of God. I'm gonna worship today. I'm gonna offer prayers. I'm gonna give an offering. And, that, and God will be said, no, God knows. You know, there may be occasions you don't know a brother has aught against you. But there are times we know it. There's been times I've known, and I've just let it ride. And here I keep coming to the house of God, and I sit here and uh, know that somebody here with me has an aught against me. And I know it, and it just burns within me. And what's happened? I'm not offering to God anything because I'm letting that consume me. So, again, Jesus is very concerned Not just with the outward action, but the intents of our hearts. Lastly, verse 25 and verse 26, time is gone, but he says agree with thine adversary quickly whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge and the judge deliver thee to the officer and the officer uh, cast you into prison. He says, Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. He's just letting us know there, if you owe somebody, it's far better while you're in the way to court, going to court with them, Just pay it. If you owe a debt, don't make somebody take you all the way to the courthouse. In Luke's account of this, he makes it very clear that he is speaking here of a creditor. There are times that you and I owe debts. There's times that I've been in debt, owe a debt, need to pay the debt. There's a debt you and I always owe. Paul says, Owe no man anything but to love thy brother. That's a debt that I always owe, and I should always be paying. Always owing should always be paying. The Lord Jesus says, Agree with an adversary quickly. Don't wait about it. He says, Pay the bill, pay the creditor, do what's right. In other words, don't try to get out of it. Don't try to find some way to say, I don't owe that brother. An apology. I don't owe a reconciliation. I don't, yes, if you've done wrong, you do. If you're in debt to this individual, love that individual enough to show it. Why? Because what's going to happen? We're going to go right back to the beginning. Anger is going to take over, and before long, there's going to be a slaying at least of a relationship. It could affect families, it could impact the house of God. And it could grow to such a point that it does become physical. And we see uh, the results throughout the word of God when anger goes unchecked. What happens when people become very wroth? We find that men do uh, very wicked things in those moments. And at the very least, we think very wicked thoughts during those times. So as Paul makes clear in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, he says, you and I were to be angry and sin not. That doesn't mean we're never going to be angry. And sometimes it's right to be angry. There are some things that ought to make us angry. There are some folks that think that you and I should just uh, casually look over any sin and any offense and never be angry about it. Again, Jesus didn't say never be angry, He says never be angry with your brother without a cause. There are times that it's right uh, when we see somebody who's doing wicked things that ought to cause anger with us. When the apostle Paul went into the city of Athens and he saw the city holy that means completely given to idolatry was Paul just say oh well that's okay that's the gods that they want to serve uh, that's how they want to serve them they can go on about their wickedness and their uh, carnality and it's not bothering me it's not hurting me and so let's just that's not what he thought that's not what he did the bible says that his spirit was stirred within him that means that he was moved with anger at the idolatry of that people in that city And so what did he do? He began to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, convicting those men, trying hopefully to convince those individuals to turn from their pagan idolatry and carnality to serve the living God. So there's a time to be angry. But as he says, be angry and sin not, let not the sun go down upon thy wrath. And then later in the very same chapter, he says we're to put away anger malice envy strife all those things to be put away from us he says instead how are we to be we're to be forgiving tender-hearted 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 loving one another forgiving one another even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven us that's what we ought to replace In other words, when he says, put off malice, anger, envy, he doesn't say, well, then just sit around and do nothing. He says, no, be tender to one another. Be loving to one another. And be forgiving of one another. He says, we're to encourage one another in the way that we speak, the things that we do. That's what the Lord Jesus requires of us. So again, in Matthew 5, he says, you have heard it said of old time. Thou shalt not kill. He says, but I say. He says, here's what God really meant. Don't be angry with your brother without a cause. Do not say to him that he's worthless. Do not make a judgment about his eternal destiny. Pay the debt that you owe and do it quickly, he says. He says, otherwise there's going to be a judgment come. He says, you're going to pay the price if you and I do not do what is right in the sight of God. These Jews had convinced themselves that if they did the bare minimum. God be satisfied with them. There'd be no consequences whatsoever. But you and I understand, as the Gospel of Luke says, unto whom much is given, much is also required. Much has been given to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And thus now much is required of us in how we live our lives for Him and toward each other. May God bless you today, as our prayer.